I remember meeting my friend Anna for the first time. She was thinking of joining Dropbox as a strategist. Someone connected us and we grabbed coffee so she could hear what it was like. And as soon as she started talking, I knew I wanted to be friends. She's this great combo of crazy smart, but down to earth. She's straight talking, but sensitive hearted. And we went from slacking each other during meetings to going on long pandemic walks and eating spaghetti dinners together. Now we're friends outside of work and we've got a nonstop text game going. Some of the closest people in my life are friends I've made at work, which makes sense. In the place we spend 40 hours a week with others, good connections are just bound to happen. But when the pandemic hit and we moved online, we lost those natural moments for connection with our colleagues. I started to feel a little bit blah, a kind of just low-grade loneliness. So what do we do when that sinking feeling hits? That's what I want to find out today. I'm Tiffany Jones-Brown, and this is Remotely Curious, a podcast from Dropbox that asks all the questions about hybrid, remote, or as we call it, virtual-first work. Today, we're talking to psychologist Dr. Marissa Franco about friendship and loneliness. We'll hear all about how attachment styles impact our friendships, why making friends as a grown-up requires us to be extra intentional, and how the secret to making good friends is to be a good friend. But first, I wanted to hear from my colleague, Emma Schmidt. She's also thought a lot about friendship over the past few years, especially after she started working remotely at Dropbox, right smack in the middle of the pandemic. I remember thinking, oh, we'll just be working from home for a month and then I'll get to go in. And then fast forward, you know, two years later, I'm still sitting in my bedroom at my little desk, uh, kind of, you know, feeling a little, feeling, feeling like I love my job, but I'm a little disconnected from the way that I work best, which is around other people, you know, bouncing ideas off each other, brainstorming in a room. And it was hard. It was definitely challenging. That's because Emma is a huge extrovert. Like me, she's met some of her closest friends through work. My very first job, I was set up with a mentor who was probably three or four years older than me. And the first two times we met, it was, you know, strictly business. And then we started realizing that we quite enjoyed each other. Um, and our meetings became more like catching up, talking about dating life, you know, her telling me about her cats. Uh, and we struck up such a nice relationship. She became, you know, one of my best friends. We decided to move to San Francisco together. You know, now I'm in her wedding and I talk to her every day. And yeah, she's one of my best friends on earth. And I just, I don't know that I could have forged that kind of deep connection so quickly virtually. Emma kept waiting for the day when she could go back in and begin connecting with coworkers. But then Dropbox made it official we'd never be going back to the office full-time. I got the email, and honestly, I took it a lot harder than I thought I would. Um, you know, I was disappointed, and it wasn't that I was necessarily frustrated with Dropbox. I was frustrated with, like, what our world had become, and it made me feel kind of, again, just suspended, like no clear indicator of when my life's going to go back to normal. And now knowing that my company 
is not going to meet in person. I just really had to confront the reality that I'm being forced into a working style that maybe doesn't agree with me. And she started to feel lonely. If I'm not getting a lot of human connection, social connection, I become pretty lethargic, a little uninspired. At Dropbox, we hear the idea that connection inspires creativity all the time. And without it, a lot of us are struggling. So I called Dr. Marissa Franco to chat more about it. She's a friendship expert, a researcher, a psychologist. She's written extensively about this topic in her new book, Platonic, how the science of attachment can help you make and keep friends. I love talking about belonging at work because it's like the place where people who aren't trying to make friends make friends. And I'm curious, what got you interested in researching friendship? Honestly, I think in my young 20s, I went through breakups, really not the greatest relationships, and I was trying to cope. So I started this wellness group with my friends where we met up and we we cooked, we did yoga together, we just practiced wellness. And it was so healing for me. And I realized that part of the reason I was taking these relationships so bad was because I felt like romantic love was this superior form of love. And, you know, the only way I could be lovable was to find a romantic partner when the wellness group really made me challenge that because I was like, wow, look how loved I am. Why don't I count this? Why doesn't this count to me? And I, I felt like my own experience was really reflecting a larger cultural phenomenon that was a problem about how we have this hierarchy of connection with friendship at the lowest end of the hierarchy. So my own experiences really made me want to be a part of changing that. Studying friendship has really taught me that a relationship is a relationship, right? So the same things that make a romantic partnership succeed, make your relationship with your family succeed, make your friendships succeed. Yet we do so much less for our friendships. Like we're just meeting up with our friends like once a month for a happy hour a lot of the time. And then we assume there's just something inferior about friendship, not realizing that we're actually treating this relationship so differently. And that's why it ends up being a lot less deep for a lot of us. I can't remember who said it, but maybe it was Esther Perel, uh, this notion of the quality of our friendships and our relationships determines the quality of our lives. And so I know there's a ton of research uh, out there about why friendships are important to our health. I'm wondering if you can say a little bit about that. And then maybe even if you've noticed some limitations in the research. So we do see some research that people actually tend to be happiest when they're around their spouse and a friend versus like just their spouse, mm. right? Um, or research that like later in life, actually your friendships benefit your well-being even more so than your marital status, right? Um, and I think that's because there are unique aspects of friendship, right? We can parse out friendships over time so that as people get older, they end up with these like really high quality friendships because they've sort of cut the fat where it's kind of harder to keep parsing your, your spouse <laughs> every year <laughs> to, to build a new and, you know, carve out this, this network and community or your family members, right? And so you don't have as much choice to really, I think, zoom into these, these very high quality connections. And the research about what happens when we don't feel like we're making friends is also revealing. The research literally tells us that loneliness predicts how long we live better than our diet, better than how much we exercise, right? But yet there's so much focus on diet and exercise as public health issues and so much less on social connection. And, you know, Juliet Holt-Lundstad, she's done, you know, really well-known research on loneliness and has found that it's actually as toxic for our bodies as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. What's basically happening is that 
in historically, right, evolutionarily, when you were alone, you were in danger. You were separate from your tribe. Someone could attack you. An animal could attack you. Our body goes through that same process now like it, it, it was historically. And that means that when we're lonely, we're in fight or flight. We're experiencing increased inflammation. We're weary for, for some danger happening around us. Lonely people, according to the research, are more likely to think people are rejecting them when people actually aren't rejecting them. They're less likely to like other people, to like their roommates, to report having compassion for people. And that's because loneliness, I like to say, it's not just a mood. It's a way of seeing the world where you're sort of cut off and you're distrusting and you're withdrawn and you're sort of seeing the worst in things around you as a mechanism, as a sort of self-sabotaging mechanism of self-protection, right? If I keep them away, nothing will harm me. When ironically, what I really need to heal is, is connection. Marissa also defines loneliness in a way I hadn't really thought about before, as a feeling that we don't have as much connection as we'd like. If you're alone and you're comfortable with being alone and you're not craving social connection, then you're not lonely. Um, but it is if you're alone and you're sort of like, I want community, I want connection and it's eluding me, I don't have it, then that's an example of loneliness. I will say that since studying loneliness so intensively, I actually suspect that we don't always know when we're lonely. I'm going a little mm. bit rogue on the research here. But because I noticed times for myself and for other people where I could see myself gaining the characteristics of loneliness before I know I'm lonely. I see myself being in a bad mood and I don't know why. I see myself assuming the worst in people. I see myself assuming if I hang out with these people, I won't actually enjoy it. I see myself assuming I want to reach out to this friend, but I don't think they want to hear from me. And I don't think they want to connect with me. And now that I know the research on loneliness, I'm like, oh, those are all signs <laughs> that I'm lonely. And my lonely brain has taken over, even though I and not at the point where I can, where I actually might say, like, hey, I'm feeling lonely. Another fascinating point about loneliness is that it's dependent on our perception. It all comes down to autonomy and choice. Our level of loneliness also depend on whether we're like, this is an offering for alone time that I want to use versus this is something that feels forced upon me. And so if one thing that I suggested for people in the pandemic is when they have time alone to be like, what is this offering me? How do I want to use this more intentionally and actively versus I'm probably just going to sit around and <laughs> watch television and, and scroll through social media, which is going to likely amplify your sense of loneliness. This is in the book, I call it the plop effect, which me and my friend Michael Ann used as a term to describe the sense that when you are in the state of comatose social media TV watching, it activates and triggers this, this larger sense of lethargy as if you don't want to do anything. And so it gets really hard to try to reach out and connect with people because of the plop effect taking over when you're lonely. Whether we're comfortable being alone is connected to our attachment style. Over the past few years, I've become fascinated with attachment science. So I was excited to ask Marissa more about her understanding of it. So your attachment is basically your template for how you think or assume people are interacting you, perceiving you, loving you, not loving you, right? And the thing about social interaction is that it's so ambiguous, right? You don't know when someone is getting a little snippy with you, whether they are hungry or whether they're mad at you, right? So our unconscious template is just how we fill in the gaps. And that's our attachment style. And it's based in our early relationships with our parents. 
So there's some nuance, of course, and your attachment style as a kid doesn't necessarily determine how you'll act as a friend and a partner. But we could do a whole other podcast on that. Here's the overall idea. And secure people, the securely attached, they have this really healthy internal algorithm where they think, they assume that people like them and want the best for them and are trustworthy until being proven otherwise, right? And so that leads them to be really good at friendship. They're actually the best initiators. Their friendships are most enduring. They're the best at handling conflict, all of these things, because they assume the best. Anxiously attached people often assume people are going to abandon them while avoidantly attached people often feel threatened by intimacy and tend to withdraw or ghost people. So basically, the insecure people are trying to cope with rejection, abandonment, mistrust, but they're doing it in opposite ways. The anxious people are clinging very close. The avoidant people are are sort of isolating themselves to cope with the perils of intimacy. And, um, you know, in remote work, we are, we're not together and... For me, when I'm together with people, sometimes it has a way of discharging tension in a way that being on Zoom all day does not. Like there aren't as many opportunities in between the meeting spaces to talk and relax and discharge anything that builds up. So I'm curious if you can talk about how remote work might trigger attachment issues in a unique way. Well, attachment issues are triggered by stress, (laughs) which I think um, we can be stressed working remotely because we don't have maybe some of the traditional things that make us less stressed at work, like work boundaries or like connection over the water cooler and those sort of things. And then what else triggers our attachment issues is ambiguity, right? It's how we interpret ambiguity. And just with our technologically mediated communication where we're emailing now (laughs) um, and we don't have nonverbal cues in the same way, right? Like, those attachment issues can really play into how we interpret this more ambiguous information when we have more limited data. So I can see remote work as maybe triggering more of these attachment wounds. I feel like the last two years suddenly makes sense. (laughs) I don't know. That's very, very helpful. And of course, the pandemic didn't only affect our work friendships. It affected our other friendships, too. Even when we can be with people in person, and even with a sophisticated understanding of attachment, it still seems really hard to make good friends. Why is it so dang hard to make friends as a grown-up? The ingredients that foster friendship, according to a sociologist, Rebecca Adams, continuous unplanned interaction and shared vulnerability. We had this as kids, right? We were on the playground. I saw you every day. We had recess together. We had lunch together. We had gym together. We were unguarded. Friendships kind of just happened organically, as they say. (laughs) As adults, many of us no longer have the infrastructure for friendship. We don't have continuous unplanned interaction and shared vulnerability. Where most of us have continued unplanned interaction is the workplace. But I would say that in the workplace, there's typically not as much vulnerability, right? People are coming to work and showing their workplace selves. And the research actually finds that the more time we spend together at work, the less close we feel. Whereas the more time we spend together outside of work, the more close we tend to feel. And and really my interpretation of this research is that it's just that if we're only showing one side of us, if we're inauthentic, we're not actually going to feel connected. And so as adults, cause it says that we don't have the infrastructure for organic connection, 
we need to be a lot more intentional. We need to take a lot more initiative or we need to find spaces and or create them where we will get that continuous unplanned interaction and shared vulnerability. I'm curious if you can say more about what are some additional challenges of making friends in remote work? I think the the additional challenges that, is that we know from the research that face-to-face interaction is the most superior form of interaction for connection, right? And the other thing is that in person, we just bump into each other, right? Like, it's just, we have these chance encounters with each other. And according to something called the mere exposure effect, the more that we are exposed to each other, the more familiar people become to us, the more we like them, the more they like us. And so in the workplace, that's happening automatically. I bump into you at the printer. I bump into you when I'm getting my coffee. And it's those little moments that foster familiarity and then connection, right? Because you know, historically, it makes sense that we're really weary of someone if they're not familiar. We're not going to feel as comfortable. We're not going to we're not going to trust them as much because they might be dangerous for us. And so because of that, I think I've already talked about how much we need to be more intentional because we don't have infrastructures to connect. And I think remotely times two, <laughs> you got to be even more intentional now. Maybe you're thinking, well, are work friends really that important Well, the research shows you'll be a better employee if you have friends at work. Marissa experienced this firsthand. Her first job out of grad school, she thought she wanted to just be heads down and focus on her work and forego relationships. But she says she wasn't feeling fulfilled. So I also saw the research that says if you have a, you know, a friend at work, you're more engaged, you're more likely to stay on the job, you're more fulfilled, you're more satisfied, right? You're more creative, like everything you want out of your job, like connection and belonging helps satisfy. So I realized how I was screwing myself. Thank you, research. It does that for me a lot. <laughs> um, so I came into this new workplace and I was like, I'm going to be so much more intentional about making friends. And and what did what did that look like? At my onboarding, I just, you know, started up conversation. It was like, hey, I'm Marissa. Like, you know, what were you doing before this? Just chatting. Oh, we should get lunch sometime. Do you want to exchange contact information? I started having weekly lunches with my coworkers. Then I did something called repotting, which is a word from Ryan Hubbard. He did, he created this project called the Kite String Project to help people connect. And repotting basically means changing the settings in which you interact. If you only interact at work, your ability to connect will be limited. Whereas if you change the setting, because settings prime different selves in us. So if I'm now outside of work, I'm at the bar, we're, we're, we're going for a walk, we're going to the museum together, you're going to get to know this different side of me. The more sides of me you know, the closer to me you feel. And so I, I repotted some of those connections. I think me and my work friends went to a play together. We hung out at each other's houses. And when we went remote, It was harder to stay connected, but what I did was knowing, you know, the mere exposure effect that you need to have repeated interactions over time to foster that sense of connection. I put a standing meeting in our calendar that was just to connect a lunch, you know? So I don't know if it was like every other week or every month, we would just have this in our calendar already and we would spend that time just connecting and catching up with one another and not talking about work. That's key. (laughs) I tell people, if you want to connect at work, stop talking about work. That's funny. Sometimes I'll start meetings and I will just have this strong urge to just, I'll spend the first 10 or 15 minutes just talking and chatting. And I know that our producers are probably sometimes like, stop, we need to get down to business. But I find this need to connect um, 
in that way is it's just really strong in me, just trying to find these little outlets for uh, talking about things that aren't work for a minute. And so the idea of being more intentional about it sounds very smart. <laughs> I want to ask you a question about language and semantics in a way. So I've seen a lot of warnings against thinking of your coworkers as family. So I'm curious if you can say why that type of thinking or language can be problematic and why. Yeah, yeah. So I've heard that, you know, when you're thinking about your colleagues as family or your workplace as family, it's not necessarily true, right? Because family doesn't fire each other. (laughs) Family doesn't let each other go. Um, Family, I guess, more than work, you assume is a place for unconditional love. So I think sometimes that terminology can try to harvest the benefits of being family without also taking on the liabilities. And Mm. I see this problem with connection in general. I think a lot of us are trying to connect in ways where we can just just like soak in the sweetness of connection without showing up for the liabilities and the responsibilities Mm. of connection. And so I think Adam Grant, you know, he's a workplace expert. He talks about thinking about the workplace as a community instead Mm -hmm. of a family. Hmm. Can you say a little bit more about what you might do differently in the community versus family land? How would you act different with with a friendship there? Yeah. Well, to me, I think community feels less like you have to be, you have to connect, you have, you are committed. This is a mandatory obligation, right? And community is more like I'm walking around with a plate of hors d'oeuvres. And I'm giving you an order and you're like, I'll take that order of connection or I won't take that order of connection. And I very much prefer that both personally and professionally, right? Sometimes I get people asking me, how do I get this person to like me? How do I get this person to want to be my friend? And I say, you don't, because when someone doesn't want to be your friend, you walk away. You don't work harder because you deserve people that also want to be your friend, right? And so I think that's true in the workplace as well. Like there are some people who are like, no, I just want this to be work. I, I don't feel comfortable connecting and I don't I don't trust. And, and that was me. And, and I think especially for like employees of color, the workplace comes with a lot more liabilities around experiencing microaggressions and discrimination that, that might be why people prefer to withdraw. But in the community, you you look for those people that, that do want to connect and you welcome them if they do want to connect and you create opportunities and you create infrastructure, but you don't try to force people to pretend they want something that they're not ready for. Hmm. So I want to go into now the kind of taking it forward what do we do? Like, I'm a person maybe early-ish in my career, starting in remote work. How am I going to connect and make friends and be a grown-up all at the same time? So you have this six-step process or the six-part process. I'm wondering if you could just outline that for us. So the first is to initiate, right? You go into this new workplace. You don't wait for people to reach out to you for coffee. Maybe they do. That's awesome. Um, but you can also reach out to them and say, hey, I'm new to this workplace. Just like looking to connect with people, wondering if you would be open to just, you know, having tea before this all starts. The second is something she calls disclosure, which is about getting a bit more vulnerable. And to, to me in that workplace, this looks like stop talking about work and start talking about who you are as a person. What are your hobbies? What are your interests? People are, are afraid of this one because they feel like things can be used against you. But 
I like to counter that vulnerability is a spectrum and there's a lot you can share about yourself before you get into the point of something that's that's dicey or or might get you in trouble. The other thing that I share is authenticity. And I define authenticity differently than how you might typically define it in the book. Because I differentiate between the concept of rawness and authenticity. Rawness is what might you share off the cuff, right? Like reflexively. It's what you share in fight or flight. Authenticity is not being taken over by these defense mechanisms of fight or flight. It is being able to engage in a way that is intentional and reflects your inner values. After vulnerability and authenticity, Marissa says the fourth key ingredient is affection. Affection is really important. So this is according to a theory of inferred attraction, which is the idea that people like people they think like them. So if you want to form connections, you need to show people that you like them and that you value them. Because according to a theory called risk regulation theory, basically people decide how much to invest in a relationship based on how likely they are to get rejected in their eyes. So the more you show affection to people, the more you calm those fears and the more that they want to invest in you. And then there's how you handle conflict. When you handle conflict well, you engage with something called mutuality which means I'm considering your needs and my needs at the same time. And I'm trying to figure out a solution that works best for both of us, right? So let's say I am, there's a big deadline coming up at work. I got time off to go on vacation, right? Um, We can get into this fight where my boss is like, you have to do this. And I'm like, no, I'm going on vacation. Or I can call them on the phone and be like, here's your need for me to finish this deadline. Here's my need for me to go on vacation. Is there a way that we could work together to find a solution that works for both of us, right? And so that's what productive conflict looks like. It's like, I'm on your team and on my team. Um, And then the last one, which one did I not share? Generosity. (laughs) And that is being giving to people around you, being willing to show people that you like and value them. I think workplaces leverage this by doing things like getting people gifts for their birthday or buying, you know, their employees lunch. Um, and and I, I, I do mention the importance in the book, too, of in your relationships. What does it look like to be generous, but also have boundaries and not just be completely self-sacrificing? And that goes back to the theme of mutuality that I talked about when handling conflict, right? Mutuality means I want to be generous towards you, but I also consider myself because people that are what's called unmitigated givers, they give and give and give and they don't consider their own needs and their relationships actually aren't as good as people that are giving with boundaries. So that's, you know, that's being generous and and figuring out how to be giving, how to be loving, how to take care of other people and also how to take care of yourself. I love that. Thank you for running down a very sophisticated six point theory in a very short amount of time. (laughs) No problem. So now I wanted to come back to my colleague, Emma, who we heard from at the beginning of the show. She had a question from Marissa. My question centers around what I can do in the absence of being able to connect with people in person and engage with them in a workplace. How can I continue to inspire myself and become motivated and energized at work? Because that's usually provided to me through coworkers and If I'm not getting that, how can I kind of do that for myself? What are some things that I can either think or say to myself or do that will make me feel less lonely and return myself to kind of a creative, inspired feeling person? 
you sharing this makes me think of research on something called the amplification effect, which is basically when we're around people, our emotions are amplified, both our positive and negative emotions. So we're not just happy, we're joyful around people. We're not just sad, we're in despair when other people can see it. (laughs) And the research actually finds that over Zoom, the amplification effect isn't as strong. So we're not getting that same emotion range, which is why I felt like in the pandemic, I was just blah. (laughs) Because other people weren't expanding my emotional world. And I would suggest, because I look at remote work, I say, you work remotely, you're not necessarily working alone. You're going to be able to choose your coworkers. That's how to see it. (laughs) And so if I'm working from home, I set up co-working dates with my friends and now my friends are my co-workers. And so in that way, I can still access connection and belonging that is at the seat of creativity and innovation. Okay, so that's how to seek out friendships and start to cultivate them. But to maintain a friendship, you've got to keep trying to not just seek good friends, but also to be one. So I ask Marissa, what does it look like to be a good friend? Assume people like you. Assume people like you. And if anything is ambiguous, you're not sure why they didn't call back. You meet a new person. You're not sure how they feel about you. Start with the assumption that people like you and go from there. And the last thing that I'll say, because I think this is relevant to, you know, assuming people like you, I've read through so much research on connection And here's what I find across all of the different chapters or aspects of connection that I focus on, on the six different aspects of connection, that we have what's called negativity bias. We assume that our efforts to connect will come off much more negatively than they actually do, right? In the research, this is called the liking gap, which is when people interact and they guess how much the other people like them, the other person they interacted with likes them, they systematically underestimate how liked they are. When we are affectionate towards other people, we assume that it comes off more awkward than it does, and we underestimate just how grateful people are and how much people benefit from this. The world of connection is a lot safer than we actually think. And we never actually test this assumption because we're so afraid of rejection that we don't act. But if we gain just the, and you don't even have to like not be afraid, but if you gain just the courage to like act even while afraid, you might find that people are a lot more open to you than you think. Dr. Marissa Franco is a psychologist, an author, and all-around friendship expert. You can learn more about how to be a great friend and make even better ones in her new book, Platonic. How the Science of Attachment Can Help You Make and Keep Friends. You'll find a link to it on our website, remotely-curious.com. So to summarize, number one, one of the easiest ways to make new friends is to be vulnerable and brave, to take initiative and simply reach out. Number two, if you're feeling lonely, try reframing it as alone time. What happens when you choose to spend time in solitude? Just assume people like you. Research shows that our fears about messaging that cool coworker on Slack for an off-screen hangout are likely unfounded. That's all for this week's episode. Thanks for listening. Remotely Curious is brought to you by Dropbox and our friends at Cosmic Standard. 
Our hardworking producers are Beauty Nazaro, Samaya Adams, Angela Johnston, and Asia Pilar Simpson. Our editor is Nina Gensler-Debs. Our technical director is Jacob Winnick. And our executive producer is Eliza Smith. Our designers are April Rosenstock and Feliz Camille Tolentino. Our theme song is composed by Doug Stewart. And I'm your host, Tiffany Jones-Brown. For more tips on working remotely, check out the Dropbox Virtual First Toolkit at remotely-curious.com. Being lonely is probably more normal than actually being connected because of the systems that we're in. Yeah, there's a lot of common humanity in all of this, including the, boy, it's so hard to just tell that person how much I really like them. (laughs) 